I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We're a podcast for curious, enthusiastic, and engaged readers. Our job is to help you discover new books in all genres, give you unique insights into your favorite authors, and keep you up to date with everything going on in the literary world. Uh, This week, we get to have a conversation with Michael Chabon and his new book, Pops, Fatherhood in Pieces. And it, it was just charming and enriching to hear from one of my most favorite authors about the challenges and joys of being a father. And after our interview with Michael, you'll hear some of our listeners' recommendations for reads or audiobooks. But first, let's listen to my conversation with Michael Chabon. We are joined today by the incredibly talented Michael Chabon, the best-selling author of 14 books, including Wonder Boys, The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay, which won the Pulitzer, Telegraph Avenue, and Moonglow. And Michael is joining us today for a conversation about his new book of essays called Pops, Fatherhood in Pieces. There is no shortage of books exploring the world of motherhood, the good, the bad, and the ugly, but there Mm -hmm. aren't enough books exploring the world of fatherhood. Along comes Michael Chabon with seven essays that beautifully explore the meaning, the magic, and the mysteries of fatherhood. Michael, welcome to Just the Right Book. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So you open your book recalling a conversation you had from almost 30 years ago with Mm -hmm. a famous writer when uh, you were at a cocktail party, and this famous writer gave you some advice. What was it? Don't have children. (laughs) It was that simple. Three words. I mean, he did elaborate on it, but that was the essence of it. And and what was your – you were in your 20s then. You were about to get married to a woman uh, that's your ex-wife. Yes. How much did that alarm you or stay with you, or did you dismiss it right then and there? I, you know, to be honest, I did dismiss it right then and there just because – not because I necessarily thought he was wrong or, or because I thought he was right, um, but because it just felt – it didn't feel relevant to me in that moment. As you say, you know, I wasn't even married yet. And, um, my, my, you know, future ex-wife and I had only had sort of a few, you know, very casual kind of almost in the nature of daydream kind of conversations about having children eventually. And, um, you know, it just didn't feel like a pressing reality. And not only that, but I had only written one book. It was just coming out. You know, I just really hadn't given that much thought to, to writing more of them, you know, and whether that was going to be hard or easy uh, or what was going to be involved in doing it at all. Just really it was not a question I had given any thought to. And, and he was putting it in these very stark terms of, you know, you lose a book for every child and and it just it didn't feel relevant to me and and I mean his words stayed with me to the extent that as soon as I had my first child they kind of came back to haunt me right um, and then I did think about them and and I you know one of the things that I was thinking about when I read that like I wonder where he was coming from do you think he just intri- I don't recall if in the introduction you even mentioned whether he did or didn't have kids. The writer himself? Yes. You know, he's ch- he, he, he was childless, so he was very much, um, you know, essentially saying, uh, do what I do, do what I did, mm. uh, if you want to really have a serious career. At the end of the introduction, you have a 
ending to this conversation about the impact of children on uh, writers. And you you close that essay with, unlike my children, my books are cruelly unforgiving of my weaknesses, failings, and flaws of character. Most of all, my books, unlike my children, do not love me back. Anyway, if 100 years hence those books lie moldering and forgotten, I'll never know. That's the problem. In the end, with putting all your chips on posterity, you never stick around long enough to enjoy it. Right. So most people, I'd say many people who are parents, I find what they talk about a lot is their children being their legacy. I don't hear them talking that much about the day-to-day pleasures. Mm-hmm. I think I, I hear them talk about them in posterity, yet you focus this book in a really just profound way about the day-to-day joy. Yes, I mean, I think, you know, um, the, the the legacy part of it, I mean, it's it's just as true with, with children in, a, in that sense as it is with books or exactly. any you know, work that one does. You're, you know, if you're sort of, you know, let's put it in, in the sort of the traditional um uh, one, one of the sort of traditional explanations given sort of semi-jokingly in a Jewish context for having children is that you'll have somebody to say Kaddish for you right? Uh, when you're gone. And, you know, I understand that could be a source of anxiety for one, you know, depending on how how, how fervently one believes. Um, but, you know, in a, in a sense, whether you're, whether you have someone around to say Kaddish for you or not, as, just as, just as with your novels, whether they are viewed as, you know, durable and classic or whatever, and can continue, continue to be read in neither of those situations, will you be around to know? So, mm. um, you know, it's not, if you sort of take that off the table, when it comes to parenting, thinking about your legacy, in a sense, passing on your name, um, I sort of feel like you have to take those off the table, and then you look at well, what is what's the point here mm-hmm. and in the here and now? Um, and um, if 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 in attempting to answer that question, um, you're not able to sort of find satisfaction in the work itself, just mm-hmm. as with the work I do as a writer. You know, I, I write because I take satisfaction from writing, and in particular from having written. And, um, uh, you know, it's it's similar with children in that there is, it's God knows it's not pleasurable all the time, far from it, but, but I think if you are able to sort of, um, for example, uh, I, I've been going through a stretch where I get up in the morning with my kids. I've been doing just prep work for starting a new book, and so I've been able to switch my schedule and do my work during the daytime. And that means I get up in the morning, and I have two kids at home right now um, still, and I get up, I get them up, um, I go downstairs, I, you know, I take their breakfast orders, I make them their breakfast. Often they want two different things. And get getting the food cooked, getting it on the table, having the table be set with their cups of tea ready and everything ready for them when they get downstairs, um, it's satisfying. I mm-hmm. find, it, you know, just in the task, in accomplishing the task itself, I take I take pleasure. pleasure. You know, apart from the pleasure of feeding them or knowing they'll have had a good breakfast or that they'll be able to face the day a little better or whatever, all that stuff too, but simply in the work itself, there's I, I try to find satisfaction and pleasure. Well, and that that comes through in the book, Michael, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll come back to a piece that you mentioned, but, you know, as I was listening to you uh, talk about, in the Jewish religion, about having children, so someone says Kaddish for you, when mm-hmm. I was raised Orthodox, and when mm-hmm. my father died, 
about 11 years ago, I uh, committed to saying Kaddish every day for 30 days. I mean, a year is what you should do, but I knew it would matter to my father. But when I thought about it, I mean, I didn't think my father knew I was saying Kaddish. Of course. But I realized how much it was for me to sort of solidify the experience of my father being my father. Right. Funerals are not for the dead. Funerals are for the living. Right. Every essay I thought was beautiful. The one that's the most poignant is your final essay, Mm -hmm. uh, which is about a time with your father. And your relationship with your father was not necessarily what you wanted from your kids. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, I guess I would say my experience of having a father was not the experience I wanted my children to have of having a father. And yet, it is clear in that essay as a reader that your relationship with your father was meaningful and connected. Oh, it was crucial. And, you know, and it still is, but especially when I was young and, you know, especially during the time my parents divorced, separated when I was about 11 and divorced when I was 13. And, um, you know, up until that time, during the period where he was very much present and, you know, living in the house, um, you know, those those years were just... Um, crucial and his influence on me was and remains very strong and and you know I've tried to acknowledge it both in the piece that you mentioned but in many other ways in telling me stories of his childhood and reminiscing about his childhood growing up in Brooklyn in the 30s 40s and 50s um you know which fed this sense I had of what life was like in New York City during that time which mm-hmm. then I think enabled me to have the, you know, chutzpah to think I could write a novel set during that period. And then also the direct influence of comic books. And, you know, he had grown up reading comic books um, and felt they were an important part of a child's literary diet. And so he supplied me with comic books, um, you know, when I was a kid. And, you know, that direct influence and it directly had an impact on on my writing that book. So, you know, there's no question, you know, he, he's probably the single greatest individual influence um, on my life um, up until, you know, my marriage and having children and my wife and children have also become um, strong influences in, in different kind of ways. You know, my father's influence is very much enduring. And, and Michael, in thinking about, you obviously gave a th- a lot of thought to the kind of father you wanted to be. Yeah, I mean, I give it, and I <laughs> give it every day, and their needs change, and their um, capacities change, and their, um, you know, the, the conflicts, the nature of conflicts changes over time, and um, the question of independence and um, um, control um, becomes, you know, uh, kind of pushed at the center of things as kids become adolescents. Um, you know, my my thought is ongoing and I'm con- it's a con- process of constant revision because I never, you know, I never get it right. And I think one of the things that um, has taken me the longest to learn is that, um, you know, having, we have four kids, my wife and I, and um, you, you, you finally get the hang of one of the kids and, <laughs> and along comes this other one. Exactly. The lessons you learn, the things you learn, the tricks you learn, the techniques you learn, the strategies, um, much of it, if not all of it, proves to be of no use or value whatsoever in dealing with the next one. Um, and, you know, now as a father of two adults and, and um, two teenagers, um, 
I, you know, I still think about it all the time. So, Michael, the the lead essay, uh, or the first essay, I don't know if it's a lead essay, uh, came from an article in uh, GQ. And in that essay, uh, entitled Little Man, you talk about your fourth child, a son, Abe. Yes. Finding his people at the men's fashion shows in Paris that you took took him to, like right before or after his bar mitzvah? Uh, it was uh, shortly after his bar mitzvah, yeah. And and you close that essay um, where Abe says, they get it. They know everything about all the designers and the house, and that's what they care about. They love to talk about clothes. They love clothes. And then you write, you were born into a family, and those are your people, and they know you, and they love you, and if you're lucky, they even on occasion manage to understand you, and that ought to be enough. But it is never enough. Abe had not been dressing and styling himself for all those years because he was trying to prove how different he was from everyone else. He did it in the hope of attracting the attention of somebody else, somewhere, someday, was the same. To what degree, Michael, as you watched a, you know, right from the get-go, and you know, like in kindergarten, wanting to dress differently and care about how he was dressed and willing to be an outsider, how much did you want to sort of pull him in and protect him from being different? Um, you know, at, at first, in the early days, probably to... Uh... Uh, a fair degree. I mean, I had gone through the experience with his older brother, which I think I write about in a different essay in the collection, uh, where his older brother had around middle school, starting around middle school, um, gone through this phase where he suddenly started dressing to go to school and he would wear little neckties, skinny neckties and um, cardigans and and really change his look from the standard um, attire of seventh grade boys in Berkeley, California, which is almost exclusively a pair of blue jeans or shorts in warm weather, and right. um, and a and a like a basketball jersey or athletic jersey. You mean like kind, Michael or, J. Or Fox did in his in the show there? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and um, uh, so you know, um, and then he was roundly penalized for that socially, and his friends made fun of him and um, taunted him, and um, and eventually he gave up, and he. And he, you know, the day came when he went off to school in his jeans and his athletic jersey. And, you know, that it was sad. It was painful to watch him go through that. And I felt bad for him. And I felt sorry that he, um, that that was, you know, even in an insanely progressive um, place like Berkeley, in a class full of kids where, you know, many of the kids have two moms or two dads or whatever, he was still being taunted with, you know, epithets like um, fag, for example, for dressing um, you know, in a cardigan sweater going to school. And so, you know, as I watched Abe um, kind of enter into that same arena uh, at a much younger age, I, you know, I definitely had a little concern about it. And there's no question he was taunted and teased. I mean, he was younger, so the teasing didn't take the same really ugly form that it took in middle school for his older brother. But, you know, people would just make fun of him. And if he wore, as he frequently did, wore a hat to school, a fedora, to school um, or a pork pie hat, um, you know, it would get knocked off his head and kids would throw it around the playground and play keep away with it. And, and um, you know, it was not like he, not that he took it all in stride at all. He would get upset. He would get angry. He would, he would fall victim to this um, keep away thing just the way they wanted him to. And he would get angry and run around and try to grab the hat. And, and um, you know, 
there was um I might have had a feeling of like of wanting to mm-hmm. on the other hand I really I admired him mm-hmm. um and in particular that uh, admiration increased as I saw that um unlike his older brother um he didn't give in he didn't give way mm-hmm. and he kept it up um he was very stubborn about it and um and in fact, to the to the extent that over time, then I would see the other boys in his class beginning to affect the same kind of clothing that he mm-hmm. had, you know, initially been teased for. And you'd see other boys wearing fedoras or other boys wearing wearing clip-on bow ties and so on. Um, you know, he had started a trend. And in fact, that's a pattern that has repeated itself, I would say, almost every year of school for Abe ever since, is that. Now, the teasing has very much diminished now. I mean, he's older and he's who he is, and, and um, he's sort of a known quantity in that sense. But um, almost every year, uh, there has been this sort of process by which the boys in his immediate circle start caring about their hair, start caring about, mm. you know, what kind of products they use in their hair, and they care, start caring about their what they're wearing, and they introduce a little bit of quirkiness into their wardrobe, and it's all sort of following Ape's model. So... No, at some point I I relaxed about it and stopped worrying quite so much about, um, you know, the pain of standing out. And do you think having brought him to the fashion uh, show in Paris and him finding his tribe gave him resilience in being able to do that? I think it more than anything, it gave him hope, I would say. Yeah. It gave him a sense of, um, it gave him a glimpse of the future, um, of a future it, where that would be possible sort of all the time. Um, you know, that, that when he entered the adult world, um, that he will, he would be able to find his people rather quickly and easily. And Michael, you, I think I either read somewhere or heard you say you give these when you write about your children or your wife or your brother, you show them what you've written first for their permission. Yeah, I, I just want to check, um, uh, you know, and make sure there's nothing there um, that is objectionable or embarrassing, or that they would prefer not to have made public, um, you know, it's, I mean, that's what I do when I'm writing nonfiction. When I'm writing fiction, I don't worry about it. But, right. but with, with nonfiction, um, yeah, I, I, you know, and so it, in the case of the, the piece, Little Man, that, about taking Abe to uh, Fashion Week, um, when I finished it, I gave it to him to read, and I said to him, like, you are in charge here. This is, um, you know, anything that you're not comfortable with, anything that you don't want me to say, anything you don't like, any, whatever it is, just tell me, I will take it out. You get this that you have, you have final cut here. And um, uh, he, you know, he, he read it and he liked it. And when he gave it back to me, it was with um, fact checks. You know, I had gotten <laughs> lots of facts wrong and he was irritated with me for having said it was the wrong kind of sneakers. How dare um, you, Michael? <laughs> I know. He was, he was really, he was appalled and dismayed. By my loose, my looseness with the uh, important fashion fact, Michael. The other thing I thought about as I was uh, reading uh, your essays is what impact has being a father had on you being a son? Um, it has made me much more forgiving of my father. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I came in, I, you know, I entered my twenties with a. a fair amount of resentment and anger toward my father um, that in some ways increased over time. Um, and I became a father at 30 um, still um, uh, with a lot of unresolved conflicts and a lot of, um, um, you know, bitterness of various kinds. You know, nothing, nothing 
really all that out of the ordinary, I think, in the typical run of relationships between men and their fathers. But it was it was um, strong, and it was um, you know easily sort of triggered. And uh, uh, you know, I held him responsible for things that he had or hadn't done, and um, and I and it diminished him in my view, um, his failings, his failures, and so on. And um, you know, then I had my first child and immediately began to fail, like, constantly on a daily basis. <laughs> right from the get-go. <laughs> right from the get-go, doing everything wrong. And, and, and you know, yes, I had a different standard than my father had, and I planned to be a different kind of father, and I held myself, you know, I intended to hold myself to a higher standard. And, you know, all that did was make me a bigger hypocrite in many ways because I, um, you know, I, I was not able to... Um, all, all, far from able to live up my own failure to follow through on things I say are important. And, um, and so in the, the net positive effect of that has unquestionably been to view my father, my own father in a much more forgiving light and understand that he was, um, he was doing the best that he could. And maybe the best that he could was, you know, not what I wish the best that he could. And, and, um, um, you know, I, and so at the age of 55 now, um, I I have no resentment. It's all gone. It's all very much abated. Mm. And I've been able to and kind of relieve him of of you know. And when I write about it, in, as I do in the essay that closes the book, and I talk about you know having been disappointed by him over the years, um, you know, and he, when he read that piece, he he asked me about that passage, and I just immediately said, like, please do not worry about that. Like, it's all gone. It's, it, that hasn't been part of my the way that I think about you for a, a long time now. Thanks to my children. That forgiveness must be just a monumental gift to your dad. I mean, I, I hope so. I hope he hears me when I say it, and, and I hope he feels it um, when he hears it. Um, you know, I, I would like to think it, it does give him some sense of relief because I do, you know, he, he was aware even before I ever mentioned it or wrote about it, um, you know, he, he was aware of it on some uh, uh, both consciously and unconsciously, and um, you know he's he's a smart person, and mm. he he's not um uh, you know maybe he would have preferred not to think about it, but he was aware of it. So I would like to think that you know that he is um, has been relieved of some of that anxiety or whatever distress it might have caused him. And does that forgiveness? Do you extend that forgiveness to yourself for things that? you wished you might have done differently with your kids? You know, I try to resist forgiving myself. I think it's too easy. Mm -hmm. I know people cite it as a kind of important developmental step, and I accept it without necessarily forgiving it. Um, You know, I try to accept my limitations and accept my um, shortcomings and my failings and so on, but I don't without that implying any kind of real forgiveness. No, I I think because I, I think if you're if with forgiveness comes a lack of um, motivation to to struggle, yeah, and I still want to struggle. I, you know, I, my son, we, my husband, and I only have one child, uh, mm-hmm. and he's twenty seven, and I am with you exactly on that. There are clearly things that I wished I had done differently, and I regret them. I try not to dwell on them, but I do think mm-hmm. forgiving yourself also means sort of letting go of trying to be better. Yes. I mean, that's how it feels to me. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I would love to have my children's forgiveness. And in the future, as they're sort of looking back, you know, I would love to find forgiveness from them. That would be very different for me mm. um, from forgiving myself. I just 
I don't know. There's something I find suspect in that. In that process. (laughs) Michael, one of the other things that I wondered about, you know, going back to this great writer who I guess you're not going to share his name with us. No, I I don't need to. It's it's so easily a a few minutes Googling. We'll we'll figure it out. Yes. Mm hmm. So, he, you know, he said one book uh, per kid. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's different for mothers who are writers about the price they might pay? Uh, Unquestionably. Their... Unquestionably. Yeah. The expectation of parenting falls much more heavily on women. Um, the standard is much higher for women than it is for men. Uh, for a man to be called a good father by the world... Is a low takes, bar. It takes... <laughs> So shockingly little um, for that to happen. I mean, a man simply, you know, I've been called a good dad in public, you know, in the grocery store uh, by a woman simply because I was holding my child in Mm. my arms while, like, unloading the grocery cart. Like, for that, this woman came up to me and said, I can tell you're a really good dad. You know, that's absurd, and it's embarrassing, frankly, that the standard is so low. I, I I feel personally embarrassed when I'm praised for being a good father. For women writers, they have a much heavier burden typically placed on them and much heavier expectations, and the guilt is much greater Mm. um, for the perceived failure. Um, But to me, the ultimate question is really what difference does it make in the end? Whether you write books or not, whether you have children or not, whether you're a good father or not, or a bad father, or a good mother or a bad mother, however those terms could be defined, um, in the end, um, I mean, to me, you'll have to look at it from the point of view that you're going to die someday and you're not going to be here anymore. And so wh- how does that affect what you want to have happen, what you want to try to do on a daily basis, and what's important to you? And, um, you know, I, I guess where, where, while I would never have wanted to be put in a position where I felt like I had to sacrifice my writing completely to child rearing um, and, and to have be sort of have that compulsory situation, which women um, are much more likely to find themselves in, you know, having been able to sort of muddle my way through as well as I can doing both. In the end, the, the thing that, that really matters to me is, you know, is my children ultimately right. and is my, my, my relationships with them ultimately give me more lasting satisfaction than my relationship to any one of my particular books that I might have, you know, lost if I had had another child or something like that. You know, one of the things I have found, I'm I'm the oldest of six, so I also raised some younger siblings and obviously uh, raised my son. And one of the things that I think kids know instinctively and quickly is about the integrity of their parent in their relationship to them. They have sort of an instinctive understanding of what that looks like. And it isn't necessarily that they have a career or that they're away from their desk or away from home. or It's not those things. It's they're with them. How do they connect to them in that moment? Yes, um, I think that's true, although I will also say that, um, in a sense, the bar with children is very low. They don't really care. It's so much more, but we know you hear this term, maybe you don't hear it quite as often as you used to, quality time. Mm. Um, you know, spending quality time with your children. Children don't care about quality time. What they care about is quantity time. Yeah. And especially when they're young. I mean, that changes as they become teenagers. But when they're young, uh, you know, up until about the age of, say, seven or eight or so, 
Um, they just want as much time. They will take as much time as you want to give them, and they don't care whether you're really paying attention or whether your your whole heart is in the game that you're playing with them or the activity that you're doing with them. Mm. You know, they just want your body near nearby. They want your physical self to mm-hmm. be with them going into the second hour. Um, you know, if you're not fully engaged in the play process, they don't really care. They they it's it's just that you're there and you're doing it. That's mm-hmm. all that they really mm-hmm. care about. You know, there was a book that came out a number of years ago called Ask the Children, and um, uh, it was done on a study of interviewing a thousand kids over 10 years who had two working parents mm-hmm. and trying to discover the column, common elements of those kids that felt satisfied. I forget how they defined satisfied, but Mm -hmm. two of the things that they came up with, one was the kids liked ritual. You know, you could say that we do Shabbos dinner Friday night and it, and you could have really only done it 20 of the 52 Fridays of the year, but that would be enough to count it as a ritual that had significance. But the other that they mention, they do mention this idea of quality time that Mm -hmm. kids understand if you're, you know, on the come home, but then you're on the phone or you're half listening. So I think maybe it's both different. Yeah, that is that's that's if you're distracted or if you're not. You're not, it's, uh, you know, being on the phone is like having another person in the room. Exactly. Um, who's taking your attention. That, that, you know, they don't need to know that you're bored out of your skull. I guess that's what I'm saying. <laughs> and you don't need to prove it. <laughs> no. You can just kind of keep that to yourself and let that be your little right. private thing that you know. Uh, uh, Michael, before before I get to a couple of the last questions, one of the things I thought about when you were talking about the low bar and the woman in the supermarket commenting you being on a good dad, one of the things that I am always struck by is at the airport. And mm-hmm. uh, when you see a woman getting on uh, the plane and she's got two or three kids and it seems like she's having a hard time sort of... Mm-hmm managing it all, you can see the sort of tisk-tisk about this woman not being able to get it together. Mm-hmm. And if a man gets on that way, you've got 87,000 people Absolutely. ready to help. Oh, no, it's like it's like a, um, a magical talking horse got onto the airplane. <laughs> I'm always, it's like, I, I, you know, I've, because it annoys me so much, I pay attention to it and I'm, you know, I make it a, I make it a point to always offer to be helpful uh, to the woman and not necessarily to the guy. But right. I, I just see people like tisk tisking this woman who's like trying to manage this. Absolutely. <laughs> so, so the last question I have is a question I like to ask all our guests, um, and that is, what's the book that changed your life? It would be hard to to pick one. I think. Um, you know, I've had. I've had so many life-changing experiences. I mean, I think given the fact that I'm a writer, I might be inclined to, to look at a book that really seemed to change my way of thinking about being a writer. Mm-hmm. And um, so, I mean, I, I think I would have to go ultimately with um, Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes stories, not one particular book, but but the whole um, collective Sherlock Holmes stories, because it was when I read those around the age of 11 or 12, and I became completely obsessed with them. And, um, I mean, maybe the book to, to cite would be a Sherlock Holmes book, which is The 7% Solution, which was not written by 
Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, but was written by a guy named Nicholas Mayer. And um, he wrote a Sherlock Holmes novel in 1973, um, and it was a straightforward, you know, narrated by Dr. Watson. It was a true pastiche or, you know, what we now call fan fiction. Um, uh, and it was about Sherlock Holmes seeking treatment from Sigmund Freud from his cocaine addiction and um, uh, but it was it was a really great book, and it came out right, right as I was in the deep throes of my passion for Sherlock Holmes, and it was so eye-opening to me. It was electrifying, and I had this sense of, wait, wait a minute, you can do that? You mm. could, I, I could write a Sherlock Holmes story if I wanted to, and just like this guy did, and, um, and in fact, then the first short story I, I wrote, Shortly thereafter, uh, my first sort of sustained work of fiction was a Sherlock Holmes story, and I had Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson teaming up with Captain Nemo from 20,000 Leagues on the right. to, to, fight, uh, to fight Professor Moriarty. So, um, so um, you know, that, that, I guess you might say 7% Solution changed my life. Okay. Well, we've been talking with Michael Chabon, uh, and we've been talking about his latest book called Pops, Fatherhood in Pieces. And Michael, I really want to uh, thank you for taking the time to be on Just the Right Book, and particularly thank you as a bookseller. Um, we have the distinct pleasure of putting all 14 of your books in readers' hands and knowing they'll all be happy. So, Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. I, I want to thank you for that, that as work. well. Thank you. Okay. Well, you have a happy Father's Day. Thank you. <laughs> I'd like to take a moment. We've gotten tons of emails, and here's a couple that I thought uh, you might enjoy hearing about. Laura uh, gave us a recommendation on a memoir. She's recommending Tell Me More by Kelly Corrigan and says it's a must-read. It's so deeply self-reflective that you can't help but question and ponder your own personal narrative. I would echo Laura's comment. All of Kelly Corrigan's books just have a way of striking a chord with how each of us are living our lives. And then we heard from Ariel. We had done a segment on audiobooks, and she said, I started listening to audiobooks a few years ago when I started commuting into the city. She does an hour on the train and a 30-minute walk each way. She tried fiction first, but she didn't like the narrator's voice and like abandon that. Uh, then she read Cuckoo's Calling, really enjoyed that. But what she mentioned, which I would agree with also, that she found fiction a little harder to follow, but like nonfiction, and it helped her read more nonfiction. Plus, it got her um, husband to read, in quotes, through audiobooks, and then they finally get to talk about books. Here were some of her favorites. Uh, Stiff by Mary Roach. She said, really, any Mary Roach book, uh, Neverwhere by Neil Gaiman, Hellbound in His Trail by Hampton Sides, uh, the book 112263 by Stephen King, or On Writing by Stephen King. By the way, that book, On Writing by Stephen King, is the book that we at R.J. Julia's highly recommend as 
the perfect book for anybody who wants to begin writing, is writing, and struggling with accomplishing what they want. It's it's just a, a perfect book. The other book she recommends is Brown Girl Dreaming by Jacqueline Woodson or In Harm's Way by Doug Stanton. She also likes Alley, A Life by Jonathan Eng, Notorious RBG. She listens to a lot of audiobooks. Notorious RBG by Irene Carmon and Memoirs of an Imaginary Friend by Matthew Dix. So Memoirs of an Imaginary Friend by Matthew Dix is one of my favorite perfect reads. I've never listened to it on audio, but she's recommending it on audio. I'm recommending you get yourself a copy, head to your nearest fun summer chair spot to read, and have a great time with that book. We love hearing your feedback, what you recommend, what you're reading, so please continue to send us your notes. You can email us at info at justtherightbookpodcast.com or message us on our Facebook page. For a complete list of all the books we talked about today, including Michael Chabon's Pops, Fatherhood in Pieces, just go to bookpodcast.com. And next week on Just the Right Book Podcast, you will hear my conversation with Allison Pearson, who sat down with me to talk about her latest book, How Hard Can It Be? This is a follow-up to her utterly hilarious hit book, I Don't Know How She Does It. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres, and our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening.